0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bible in a Year podcast. I'm your host, Jay Smith, here with Jimmy Doyle, Travis, Bruno. We are in chapter seven. We split this up into two pods just to make sure that it was uh, uh, that each one got what it needed as far as the reflection and some of the things we we're talking about. We're starting off today in verse 24 with the Syrophoenician woman's faith, and this is a uh, a really important passage, and so let's get into it. let's move on to 24. Uh, After Jesus left there, he went into the region of Tyre. When he went into a house, he did not want anyone to know, but he was not able to escape notice. Instead, a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek of Syrophoenician origin. She asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She answered, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, because you said this, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Uh, Important thing, apparently, that every commentary that I have wanted to make sure that you knew as a 2020 reader is. Uh, Dogs were not uh, beloved pets in the first century. Um, A pretty despised is maybe too strong, but not an animal that they gave a lot of thought to more of a I mean, more of a scrounger and and somebody that, you know, or an animal that was not highly valued like they are today. Uh, So that's an important distinction. And then I think it's important for us to recognize that there's uh, the Syrophoenician side of it is is maybe a little confusing language and that's why i do appreciate the fact that mark emphasized that she's greek so she's hellenistic she's going to be um a gentile which is also what jesus alludes to in the language of who gets the first fruits or the first food and who gets the scraps um and she knows and she responds in in really faith but also in courage to be able to respond to jesus who she knew would have had this power because she came and found him and is asking for him to do something special, uh, or or something miraculous for her family. And so Jesus, Jesus responds to her kind of stubborn faithfulness, uh, by, by healing and casting out the demon from her daughter, uh, from afar too, which is an important thing because that's Not always what Jesus does. Uh, Often he has to lay hands or he does lay hands, but there are a few moments in in this one particular where from afar, right, without being in the presence, the demon has left you. And I know, and I can't remember if it's in Mark or if it's somewhere else, but there's a centurion that asks uh, Jesus to heal uh, a servant. And and he has this whole conversation once again about authority. It's like, you don't need to come to my house to do this. You can do this right here. And Jesus does. And so that's a I mean, I don't know how substantial it is, but it's one of the things that resonated in my mind as I read this. And so I'll stop talking and kind of pass this opportunity um to not glance over this. Travis, when you read about the Syrophoenician woman, uh, what are things that pop up to you? Uh
1: well, something that I think Jay, you mentioned at the beginning. Um, glancing through this part and saying that like this sort of mini conversation between Jesus and this woman is like a kind of tongue-in-cheek thing or whatever and uh, one of the other things that I try to do is remind myself that Jesus wasn't always like this stoic figure sort of hovering around and proclaiming truths and like you know, doing, there's like, I don't know why that seems to be sort of a default in my mind sometimes with Jesus, but uh, realizing that maybe the same way that he seems to know the hearts of the Pharisees sometimes when they are uh, sort of asking leading questions, trying to trap him in all of those situations. Like here, I wonder if, if Jesus also already knew like her genuine heart about the question and she's not like, well, I don't know, but and so this conversation I'm trying to sort of picture it in a different way. Um, and it seems to be a lot more relatable that like they're sort of grinning as they have this exchange. And she knows that like who he is and being a Jew and like the difference, like she understands those things, but also she knows maybe in a way that some don't like who Jesus really is, um, and the value that that is. And so she's coming for that part of it. And, And so he's just throws it out there. Like you said, kind of in a sort of a playful way. Um, and they go back and forth and he, he does that, what she's asking for. Um, and thinking of it that way, just, it makes me grin a little bit and it feels more relatable and remembering again, that like Jesus isn't always this super harsh, stoic, like serious all the time person. Like he was a human and he had a sense of humor and he was witty and, um, Anyway, so that's just something.
2: Interesting. I wonder if most people would read it, that this was a humorous thing. That's what, one of the things I love about these stories is that you can kind of imagine them from so many different perspectives. You know, Kierkegaard writes this this uh, book that has all these different ways that he imagines the story of Abraham offering up Isaac, how it could have gone down all these different ways it's interesting that you could write a gospel and write our own paraphrase and imagine it different ways and have different outcomes of what that looks like because the gospel authors don't really tell us how it felt, right? So what if it's like this sarcastic thing where he's kind of, you know, joking with the woman and she's giving it right back? Uh, it could be that way. It could also be really harsh, right? Like it could be that he's she's there to get her daughter healed from this demon. And Jesus is responding in a way that a Jew might respond to a Syrophoenician woman. Like in, in the gospel of Matthew, this woman is identified as a Canaanite. Uh, the Phoenicians have been enemies of the Israelites and the Jews for a long time. They're the source of Baal worship and Molech worship and child sacrifice. And um, at the time of Jesus they're they are literally taking things from Galilee, like financially, like they're taking their resources. um, And there's a tension between Jews and Syrophoenicians and Tyrians at the time. So um, it's interesting to know, like, how did this conversation go down? What was it like? Uh, What's cool is the woman doesn't back down, like, however it went, like she gives it right back to Jesus. And she even plays into the story. Like he's basically saying, you're like a dog. whether he's joking or not. And she's like, okay, well, even dogs eat crumbs from the table. Like um, Mallory Malwick asked this question in the forums, like why were there 12 baskets picked up when Jesus fed the 5,000? And it's interesting, those baskets are crumbs, right? They're the leftovers of the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, we're about to read a story in the next chapter of Jesus feeding 4,000 in a Gentile region. And I kind of wonder if this is the transition of Jesus the message of Jesus has already gone out, with the Garrison demoniac. He's telling the story. Jesus has been going through the Decapolis area. Now he's in the Syrophoenician area. And this woman is, her daughter is, the demon is cast out. He's about to spend some time with Gentiles. And it's interesting to see that Jesus is working not only among the Jews, but also among the Gentiles. If it's this crumb thing, Jesus is definitely, he's feeding, he's feeding, he's giving. It's more than crumbs to these people. So it's an interesting thing.
0: Yeah. One of the things that was also of, of significance, that's another one of those word things. And it's, it's really not anything that probably stood out to me in the initial read. And so it took a little bit more work, but there is a place in verse 28 where she does answer, uh, yes, Lord. So she uses this word Lord. That is, uh, one of the commentaries I came across as it's the only time that this address is used in Mark's gospel. And she said it could be kind of a glanced over, like it could just be a sir, sir, you know, but one of the things that, that they kind of, um, I don't know, fill in the gap thinking that most people that would have read this would have recognized pretty quickly that she understood who Jesus was, uh, and what that meant and that it was not just a simple, you know, kind of proper phrasing as much as it was like a, a real, uh, you know, acclamation or acclaim, you know, a claim—you know—a real saying that this is who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of a neat part of this as well. Any other thoughts on this story?
2: I mean, there's a lot of other thoughts, but we, we can move on. <laughs> uh,
0: right? <laughs> yeah, uh, we're at the uh, last section or the last part of this chapter. Um, Jesus goes into. Uh, the Decapolis. And so this is another one of those times, if you remember, gosh, three chapters ago, this is the area with the garrisons, the area where the demon would have been, uh, legion would have been cast out into the pigs. Am I wrong about that? Isn't that the same kind of area in the Decapolis?
2: Yeah. Same area. Yeah. It's going to be on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting is this is a circuitous route. Like he's not going straight back. He goes actually north into Lebanon and around he, he's, he's almost avoiding the region that uh, Herod Antipas is in control of. Like he's, he's staying out of Galilee as he's coming back to Galilee. It'd be like if you were driving to Dallas and you decided to, if you're going to Dallas from Memphis and you decide to go north up through, you know, Illinois and Missouri, <laughs> come down come, around and yeah. come back from the, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So I'll just read this and then we'll just talk a little bit about it. So verse 31, then Jesus went out again from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon or Sidon, uh, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking, and they asked him to place his hands on him. After Jesus took him aside privately, away from the crowd, he put his fingers in the man's ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. Then he looked up to heaven and said with a sign, uh, Ephatha, Ephatha, uh, that is, be opened. And immediately the man's ears were opened, his tongue loosened, and he spoke plainly. Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone. But as much as he ordered them not to do this, they proclaimed it all the more. People were completely astounded and said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Uh, number one, one of the things that always sticks out to me is anytime that Jesus uses Aramaic, uh, you know, and I don't really have much super deep and, inf- you know, influence or, uh, you know, inferences based on that. But I do always think it's something where there's an intention with that and reminding us that there are multiple languages that this context, like if you talk about reading the text in its original uh, context is you're reading it through three different, you know, language lens, right? Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic as part of that. So, um, and then also it's kind of disgusting the way that Jesus heals this man. And so I don't know if there's some sort of significance to spitting and it, it, in my mind, he puts the fingers in the ears and then spits on the ground, but was the spit directed somewhere else? Uh, and I, I think about this in the context of Mike Todd, who's a pastor out of Tulsa, uh, spit in his hands and wiped it on a guy's face a couple of weeks ago to make a point in the sermon. And it was the most outrageous uh, Twitter response I could ever imagine for something like that, which I kind of agreed. It's kind of disgusting, but it always draws me back to these moments where I was like, I wonder how they would have felt about this in the first century.
2: Uh, in the first century, they would not have, um, <clears throat> this would have been, i you know, I'd say normal. It, I don't think it would have freaked anybody out. Uh, there's a story, I think about Vespasian that s- somebody was sick and they thought Vespasian had, uh, was, you know, Roman general at the time became emperor later, like uh, had, uh, healing powers and he uses spit to heal someone, uh, in the Talmud written much later, uh, one of those Jewish texts, it says that, uh, uh, the spit of a firstborn child has healing powers. Like there's this idea. If you think about it, like you see animals licking their wounds all the time. There was this idea that saliva somehow had a healing property. So for Jesus to spit that the idea may be that Jesus actually spat like on his hand and then grabbed the guy's tongue. Right. Like, um, He, in, in another gospel, Jesus spits into some and makes some paste and puts it on a blind, in the gospel of John, puts it on a blind guy's eyes. Um, and that would not have been, I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, what anthropologists would call shamanistic cultures where you're used to healers doing all kinds of things to heal people. And, you know, the question is for us is why does Jesus do that? Why does he engage in those type of practices? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but it wouldn't have been, it would have seemed like something healers and doctors do potentially yeah for spitting to be a part of that and speaking it says that he he groans right which is also a part of this thing that healers sometimes do they groan um it may say sigh in some english translations but the word is groan so uh this physical engagement i think this was hard for us to to think about sickness was seen as a spiritual issue and a lot of times it was seen as being enacted by demonic forces And when you're a healer in that context, you're not just some doctor using science. A lot of times you're engaging in a spiritual struggle to bring about the healing. And from a first century perspective, Jesus probably would have been seen as engaging in a spiritual struggle to heal this this man. So groaning and speaking and doing these things uh, physically were a part of that process. I don't think that necessarily means that I should go around spitting on people to heal them um, necessarily.
0: Groaning and spitting all over the place, right? Probably people wouldn't be a little freaked out by you. Yeah.
2: Biblical scholars, uh, they often look at the gospel of Mark and say, what Mark has done is he's taken a bunch of Old Testament scriptures and written a life of Jesus where he's shaping the life of Jesus based upon scriptural fulfillment of messianic expectations of the Old Testament. And he doesn't even always point them out. And we haven't done that much in this podcast, but really almost everything that Jesus is doing, we could go back and tie it into some messianic expectation that's in the Old Testament. And kind of the assumption is, is that Mark's readers, if they had been uh, Jews or non-Jews who were a part of scripture study of the Old Testament, uh, that they would have been seeing these parallels. So what's interesting is Jesus has just gone through Lebanon and he's come back down from Lebanon and there's prophecy In Isaiah 29, it says, um, shall not Lebanon in a very little while become a fruitful field, right? These Gentiles will become a fruitful field and the fruitful field will be regarded as a forest. On that day, the deaf shall hear the words on a scroll and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Like this idea of a deaf mute person somehow connected to the idea of being in the Lebanese area, the Lebanon area, and here in Mark, you have this man where Jesus has just come from the Lebanon area, may still have been in it, and this deaf, mute man is healed. Um, to me, I don't think Mark's making that story up. I think something like that really happened, and they're making these connections like, oh, my gosh, this, this is a fulfillment of this prophecy. And Mark's not necessarily having to even explain that, I don't think, to his readers. I think they would have been way more familiar
0: with the scriptures than, um, than we are. That's a great insight. Travis,
1: take us home, man. Well, I'm just confused because if he's still in the Decapolis, why did he charge them to tell no one? Because that was something that we sort of drew out of some previous chapters that in the more Gentile areas, he seems to be telling them to go spread the word. And in the more Jewish areas, he seems to want them to keep it a secret or not spread it. Um, But this is not that situation. And so I didn't know if you knew why. What's the answer?
2: I don't know why. I don't know if there's a consistency to it. Sometimes he says, go tell things, and sometimes he doesn't. And I think it's hard to know necessarily why that's taking place. What's interesting is here's a man who's been mute, and Jesus heals him, and he tells him, don't go tell anybody. I think there's that's kind of an interesting <laughs> thing. I've also wondered that if Jesus is playing on human nature some, right? Yeah. The more you tell someone not to tell anybody, if I came to the two of you and say, hey, guys, don't tell anybody, there is something about us that makes us go, I'm going to tell that to somebody. <laughs> and that this messianic secret no. might be the best way to promote things, right? Like, make sure you don't tell anybody. It's a guaranteed way that they're going to go around. I mean, will a guy who's been healed and able to speak now, who's not been able to speak and able to hear now, and now he can hear, is he really going to be silent about? I mean, he's not because he's going to be talking, right? There's an irony here. Like, you can't, he's healed of this thing. He's going to be talking. Everybody's going to
0: know it. So, well, and I think it's also, Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense why sometimes it does. And one of the things I came across says that this is the the only time or the first time, the only time that uh, Jesus commands a Gentile or a Gentile area to be silent. Uh, And so it does kind of maybe allude to a little bit more of what Jimmy was talking about. And I think the other thing is, is Jesus is trying to also. And this may be me leaping too far, but is Jesus also maybe ask us a question, trying to say that belief or following Jesus is more is more than just seeing the signs and being amazed or drawn by the power uh, that the kingdom is more than just about the healing and all of those things. And and that Jesus is the Messiah is bigger than just the things that he's done. Um, I don't know. That's just some of the thoughts I always have whenever I kind of. So why would Jesus keep people you know, these miracle secret It's part of it is like helping followers follow him for, you know, reasons that aren't just the miraculous. So, well, thank you for listening to this podcast. I want to make sure that you read along with us, read-scripture.com. We will be starting chapter eight, uh, next. And so this is a, a pivotal chapter, kind of the middle of, uh, the gospel of Mark. And so we will be reading that and talking about that next week. And so I just encourage you to do that. We believe that scripture is best best uh, engaged with in community. And so go to read-scripture.com, jump in the forums, talk to us. Uh, about what you are experiencing, the story of Jesus. And then we also just encourage you that if you think somebody in your life would benefit from hearing us talk about the Gospels or reading the Gospels with us, just invite somebody to be a part of that. Share this with them, share the website with them, however you wanna do that. So thanks again for listening and we will see you next week.